Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Recently, I rewatched the movie Midnight in Paris. It came out seven or eight years ago. You might have seen it. It stars Owen Wilson as Gil, who is a hack Hollywood screenwriter who is convinced that he's really got a novel inside of him. And he is searching for his muse in Paris. So one night, after a little bit too much wine with dinner, Gil is wandering around the empty streets of Paris. He realizes he's gotten himself lost. And he sits down on some steps. And somewhere, a clock chimes midnight. And just as it does, this old-fashioned car comes around the corner. And all the people who are in it call for him to, to get in. And Gil thinks clearly they've mistaken him for somebody else because he doesn't know these people. But, you know, he gets in anyway. And pretty soon, they arrive at a party. And everybody at the party's dressed a little bit funny. A woman comes over, introduces herself as Zelda, and says, you've got to meet my husband, Scott. Scott Fitzgerald. As in F. Scott Fitzgerald. And that person at the piano, not just playing Cole Porter, he is Cole Porter. So somehow or another, Gil has found himself in 1920s Paris. And before long, he's met Hemingway and Picasso, Dali, Gertrude Stein. It's the sort of situation that if you might, hypothetically speaking, be a Francophile former English major, is kind of your dream situation. (laughs) But when Gil got in that car and when he arrived at that party, he had absolutely no idea what was going on. And even as he began to realize more and more where, or really when, he was, he still had no idea how it had happened or what it meant. He had come to Paris looking for his muse, but this was not how he expected to find it. Now, I will admit that it is a little strange, maybe bordering on sacrilegious, to find yourself thinking about a Woody Allen movie when you're reading the story of Jesus' resurrection. But that's what happened as I pondered Luke's account of the resurrection. This movie is what came to mind because when Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women, when they went to the tomb that Sunday morning, what they found was completely surprising. They knew what they were looking for, Jesus' dead body, presumably right where they had left it, so they could embalm it with the spices and the ointments that they brought with them. But what they find when they get to the tomb is not at all what they were expecting. First of all, they find that the stone has been rolled away from in front of the tomb, And that is no small feat. That stone would have been a massive thing, weighing hundreds of pounds, if not more. Then the women go, and they peer inside, and they find that the tomb is empty. And if that's not strange enough, just as they're trying to figure out what happened to Jesus' body, 
they turn around and find these two angel-like beings. It's all strange enough that it makes bumping into Ernest Hemingway at a dinner party seem completely ho-hum. But I don't actually think that any of that is the most surprising part. I think the most surprising part is what happens next when the angels start talking. Why do you seek the living among the dead, they ask. I like to imagine Mary Magdalene's response. I like to think that she managed to be both reverent and a little bit feisty at the same time. So that when the angel asks, why do you seek the living among the dead? I imagine Mary responding, well, you're right. That would be a pretty stupid thing to do. But it's Jesus that we're looking for. And the last time we checked, he was dead. And I've generally found that dead people stay dead. But look, the angel says, he is not here. Well, yes, sir, we can see that. He is not here. He is risen. I'm sorry, he's what? He is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee? See, I think we miss the true surprisingness of the women's experience because we come to this knowing the end of the story. For us, Empty tomb equals risen Jesus. But for Mary and Mary and Joanna and the others, empty tomb simply equaled missing Jesus. There could have been any number of reasons that Jesus' body was gone. And presumably his rising from the dead was not at the top of their list of probability. And that's why I love the angel's statements so much. He is not here, but has risen. These are two related but separate statements that not only express the truth of the situation, but I think also capture a great deal of what it's like to live as Christians. Raymond Brown was a great New Testament scholar, and he put it this way. He said, That Jesus is not here, the women can see with their eyes. That this is because God has raised Jesus, they must take on faith. That Jesus is not here, they can see with their eyes. That this is because God has raised Jesus, they must take on faith. In Luke's telling of the story, the women don't see Jesus himself. They go back to where the disciples were gathered and they tell them, but the women themselves haven't yet encountered the risen Jesus. The tomb is empty, they know that. They've seen angels who are presumably pretty reliable messengers, but it's not until later when Jesus appears to all the disciples who have gathered in a room together, it's not until then that the women can see for themselves that Jesus is risen. Even on Easter morning, there is still a degree of faith that's required. And that's true for us, too, as we gather on this Easter morning. There is much that we can see with our own eyes, but there is much that we must take on faith. So, for example, 
that we are sinful, that we know. If you have spent any of this Lent in self-examination and repentance, that's probably been abundantly clear to you. If you've ever just spent a few moments honestly looking at yourself and all of your motives for the things that you do, that's probably very clear. That we are sinful, that we know. That we are completely forgiven in Christ, utterly cleansed, loved, and cherished beyond imagining, that can still take a great deal of faith to believe. That we are frail, we know. We cannot sustain ourselves either physically or spiritually. Our bodies depend on the provision of food and water and shelter, our souls on the provision of love and grace and mercy. That we are frail, we know. That God desires us to be nothing other than utterly dependent on him, well, that can take a lot of faith for our fearful and self-sufficient hearts to believe. There are so many things that we can easily see for ourselves. Life is hard. Loved ones get sick and die. People struggle to find work and support their families. We burn the candle at both ends and don't know how we'll have enough to give time and energy to our work and our families and our friends. Wars ravage entire nations. Girls are sold into prostitution. Boys are forced to become soldiers. That all is far from the way life should be. That life is hard. This we can see with our own eyes. But that God is somehow in the midst of it. That God is with us and hurts with us. And that he can somehow redeem all of it. That takes an enormous amount of faith to believe. And even in happier things, we can see this same dynamic happening. So think of a time when you started something new, something that you were excited about. Maybe it was a new job, a new school, a new relationship. That this was something that you had wanted and that you were looking forward to and that you trusted that God had led you into this situation all of that you knew, but that no matter how it unfolded, whether it went the way you wanted it to or not, that God would be with you in it and would use it to draw you closer to him, that you had to take on faith. Or think about us, this congregation, St. Michael's. That God has called us to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, that we know. That God has called us to reach out to the community around us and to share Jesus' love in words and actions, that we know. But that God will bring fruit out of our efforts, that lives and communities will be changed because we have given ourselves to the mission that God has given us, that we have to take on faith. This tension between what we can see and know on the one hand and what we must yet take on faith on the other 
that tension can be a hard place to live. We want to resolve it. We want to get to the place where we don't have to take anything on faith anymore. We want to see the risen Jesus. And I imagine the women at the tomb felt exactly the same thing. But notice what they did after they encountered the angel, or rather what they didn't do. They did go back to where the disciples were. They didn't go searching all over Jerusalem for this supposedly risen Jesus. They didn't wear themselves out going door to door asking people if they'd seen a guy with holes in his hands and his feet who was supposed to be dead. They went back and they waited. Jesus did appear to them. Their faith was turned into sight, but it happened on Jesus' time when he chose to appear to them. It was a gift, a grace, something they had to receive, not something they could make happen on their own. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. As you wait in the tension of all that is not yet fully realized in your life, in your faith, in your daily choice to follow Jesus, That tension will one day be resolved, but it's not your job to resolve it. Your job is to wait, to be patient, to be open, to trust that Jesus will come and that tension will be resolved and your faith will turn into sight, but it won't happen on your time. And it won't happen because of your striving and your effort. It will be a gift, a grace, something for you to receive. In the liturgy of the great vigil of Easter, which a number of churches observed last night, scriptures are read that represent the whole story of salvation from Genesis all the way through. And of all those readings, there's one that always particularly stands out to me, and one moment in that reading in particular, and that's in Exodus, the story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. The Israelites were there at the edge of the sea. The Egyptians were bearing down on one side. The Red Sea was on the other. They were trapped, as far as they could tell, and as they usually did, they were grumbling. They said, is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you let us out here to be killed? But Moses looks out over them and he looks at this apparently impossible situation. And he says, fear not. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, I think it's possible that there's a little edge of sit down and shut up in Moses' words to the grumbling Israelites, but the bigger message is far more profound. This, he's saying, this whole situation, your rescue, your salvation, this is the Lord's job. He's going to do it. 
And what you need to do is wait, to be silent, to stand firm, and then to witness, to see as your faith is turned into sight. It is, in a way, the same message that the women received at the tomb that morning. Do not fear. Stand firm. You will see the salvation of the Lord, which he, he will work. Peter went to the tomb, too, a little bit later that morning. He didn't see the angels, but he saw the empty tomb. And that, the empty tomb, together with what the women had told him, that seems to have been enough. Because Luke tells us that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. Peter had seen the empty tomb, but he had still to take on faith that Jesus was risen. And even so, he marveled. So as we gather this morning in great celebration, may we embrace that tension between what we can see for ourselves and what we still must take on faith. May we stand firm, for we will see the salvation of our Lord, and we will marvel. Alleluia. Amen.